0: Is your organization agile enough to survive, let alone thrive, in the digital era? Hi, I'm Scott Smith for Gartner ThinkCast, and we started to explore that concern with Gartner Research Vice President Andy Rosal jones on a previous ThinkCast installment. Andy is a lead analyst for the latest CIO agenda released at Gartner Symposium IT Expo 2017. Well, let's go back to Andy's discussion with senior executive partner Michael Power of Gartner Executive Programs as the two talked at Gartner's Melbourne office. So, Michael, I'll send it back to you.
1: Andy, one thing I think the move to Agile or Mode 2 has done has changed for the better, I think, the level of involvement of business stakeholders and getting business buy-in, even by name uh, calling a business owner, a product owner rather than a business stakeholder. And the way that they need to participate upfront and during at regular intervals through the project has, I think, gone some way to involve the business more in an accountable way in projects. But I'm pretty sure that has some challenges as well. What would you say would be the key challenges in that scenario? Well, I think the
2: danger or the problem with with Agile and the various spin offs of that uh, methodology is that. Of itself, it works extremely well, but it has limited application. We're now going to get into a religious debate about where and where you can and can't use Agile. But there are some projects which are still complicated enough and still take a long time, multi-year execution. But although you may be able to do bits of them using Agile methodologies, there's still fundamentally a methodology that's driven off a specification at one end, user acceptance test halfway through, and then a delivery several months or years later at the other end. In other words, a waterfall methodology. So that's the first problem with Agile in that you start to believe that everything can be delivered in this uh, very rapid, high involvement way. And the other thing about the Agile development, I mean, where it works extremely well, and I think in your introduction, you used the phrase product manager as opposed to business owner. And I think there's, there's a very important point buried in that very simple word change Because a product manager says, well, this isn't the end game. This is version 1. And then we're going to do version 1.1. And then we're going to do version 1.2. In other words, it becomes an iterative development. So the other danger of that sort of project approach, for a start, there's all the technical debt issues and all of the ICHR problems that go with it. But it also becomes this notion of, well, whether this thing is sustainable over a long period of time because at some point, the rate of change of projects does actually slow down. they have become mature. So think of your more cell phone operating system. So if you happen to be using, I see you have an Apple iPhone there, Mike. So you know, iOS, now, iOS 11 is fundamentally different to iOS 10, Well, not really, it's mostly the same, and that was mostly the same as iOS 9, was kind of very strongly similar to iOS 8 and so on, because the rate of change of even devices like these mobile phones, cell phones, are slowing down, because... Basically, all the features you could possibly imagine have already been put in. And the same is true of most other projects, whether it's an agile development to engage a customer group, whether it's an agile development to solve a a supply chain logistics or an operational issue or a citizen engagement or a service delivery problem. Once the problem has fundamentally been solved, once the solution is understood, then there are other mechanisms, there are other ways of addressing IT. And so the danger is you're training a whole generation of business managers to go back and think like we're in the 1970s again, when there was no methodology, no one had a clue what was going on, and we ended up with even more failed projects than now. In other words, we are instilling some really bad behaviors.
1: Well, back to the future. We don't want that, do we, Andy? But I do remember those days as well. Let me just talk a bit more about governance. You've mentioned governance a couple of times and I have heard and have since repeated an analogy and I'll pose it to you. It comes as a question. Why do cars have brakes so they can go faster? Can you give us a, a hint or some advice on effective governance without overblown governance and
2: getting caught up in so much bureaucracy. Well, I think. think I mean, you have to think about what governance is really for, and it's generally for a couple of reasons. If you are an entity with lots of oversight, you have a regulator if you're a government department. Governance is often about responsibility, fiduciary responsibility. So we have to go through a process. So it really is tick and flick. It's really for the very base reason of it's making sure that no one can criticise me later. So that's the weakest reason you have governance. But that's unfortunately why a lot of governance exists. A more powerful reason to have governance is that you do have factional or fractional internal stakeholder groups. And sometimes proper consultation processes and a good racy model is the only way of engaging that group. Sometimes governance and the very clear appointment of some else who's responsible for something, it makes the product acceptable. So, for example, if you were a vendor and you've introduced something, uh, a payment gateway, which is used more broadly than just outside the firm or the uh, the business it was originally developed for, no one else is going to join that party if they don't have any control over it. So think of the user groups for the large software vendors. It gives the other users a voice and a power. It gives them some rights to influence how an SAP or an IBM or an Oracle develops their products, and so in a sense it transfers ownership or partially certainly there's a consultative mechanism so you feel safer buying those tools because you have some representation. But I think the most powerful reason that you have governance is really it's a way of informing people, it's a way of making decisions which are binding and which are useful. Because a properly functioning governance process, and anybody who's been involved in governance design should always ask this question, they tend to be expensive. They have meetings, they have minutes, they have coffee, they have Tim Tams, they have endless consultants engaged, lots and lots of process, lots and lots of publications, bazillions of photocopy pages and thousands of PowerPoint slides. So they're expensive. So what are you getting back? And the really interesting question I think you have to pose with governance is going in, it's like actually any project. What problem is governance solving? Is it solving an execution problem? Is it solving a prioritisation problem? Is it solving a we don't have enough resources problem? Is it solving a warlike factions amongst the stakeholders problem? Is it solving an oversight problem? So once you're very clear what governance is for, You should then ask yourself the question, I'm pouring all this money and process and time into it. Am I getting a good return for my governance efforts? Because governance is just like any other project.
1: Yes, so understand what the requirement is and then work around that in terms of adapting your governance. We've spoken a fair bit about, and we started off with social science being sort of the subtitle to our major program governance discussion. Do you think, Andy... We, as IT executives running major programs and running change, which is what we do, spend enough time understanding our stakeholder group and spending enough time influencing those, for one of a better word. Oh,
2: you're, you're, I think you're leading the witness because you and I are both on the same page on this, Mike, which is the answer to no, of course not. Because Of course,
1: the, my job is to lead this yes, Because, I, mean,
2: because the, I think the point is that it's actually very difficult when you're doing a project plan and you're trying to hit. Real milestones. You know, the earned value analysis. I've got my status steering committee meeting at the end of the month. I've got my scope control meeting on a Monday morning, and I've got to prove that I've hit these deliverables. And this has gone through sociability testing, and you know, this RAD team have come back with a really whizzy user interface that people like. Those are the concrete deliverables. So they're the things that tend to get the attention. So it's very easy from a project execution perspective to focus on concrete deliverables because they're measurable. It's very difficult to measure sentiment. It's very difficult to measure whether the frontline troops who are delivering a service or the truck drivers or the people who work in the warehouse, the people who work in the retail store. It's very difficult to understand what they really think and how they will react to something, particularly as early on, even with agile development, the early early iterations are a little better than working prototypes. So it's really difficult to judge. And so I think one of the great learnings, the whole notion of change management, stakeholder engagement, project communications, is something that we're getting better at. But I think generally looking at CIOs as a community, generally we're not naturally people people. And so as an engineer, you view people as a constraint. It's just another variable. It's just another environmental factor which I can work around or I can change or I can address. I don't think we spend enough time with that. And it starts, I think, all the way up to that proper stakeholder analysis. In fact, for anybody who's listening to this call, if you've ever looked at anybody, whether it's a project manager or a CIO who's running a big project, Ask them about their stakeholder. Who are their stakeholders? Have they done a stakeholder map? Have they figured out what their stakeholders want? Have they figured out what their stakeholder engagement in all of this should be and is? Because those stakeholders are the people who are ultimately going to dictate the success or failure of this project. So do they understand not only who their stakeholders are, but the motivations of their stakeholders and how to influence those stakeholders? Excellent.
1: And we are shooting fish in a barrel on this one. But we did come back to influence. We've been talking about governance and specifically governance of large programs, projects, and we've come back to influence. And I think there would be a couple of things that you might recommend that people could go through as part of a stakeholder management Exercise. Well, I
2: think number one is figuring out who your stakeholders are. And that's not as easy as it sounds, because you can have people who are obviously stakeholders. So I'm inventing some new way of selling my product direct, or I'm going to build an e-store. Or I'm going to do something which... Now, that's obviously going to impact my old channel. It's obviously going to impact my current retail staff. It's obviously going to impact my supplier relationships. But it might impact the way we distribute stuff as well. It'll impact the distribution sector. It'll impact the way we charge customers. It'll impact the other products we might choose to sell. So it's taking a really broad view as to who our stakeholders are and it becomes you know, absolutely as broad as you can. So figure out who is going to be influenced by this thing. And then, of course, sorting those groups into people who are fundamentally changed by them versus some people who just need to keep involved or some people who could turn into nasty political enemies. The other interesting question is, where is the biggest reputational risk, particularly if you're the CIO on a project or you're advising a CIO on a project? Where's the biggest reputational risk for the CIO? And in this context, it's reputational risk with respect to stakeholders. So which group of stakeholders is the CIO most in danger upsetting? And if they do upset them, how do you come back from that? How do you negotiate your way back? How do you rebuild trust? Because if you are a CIO and you've blown trust or you seem to have abused a trust with some senior level stakeholders, they probably won't ever forgive you. So there are some things you need to work on there. So I think it's the usual story. Figure out who they are. For so the senior ones, personalise your response. For everyone else, sort them into groups and figure out what they need to know, how they need to be involved, even a mechanism. So, for example, the way people communicate. You and I are both talkers. Not that I'm giving you, Mike, any opportunity of talking this afternoon. I'm
1: just nodding at the moment. <laughs> yeah, I'm right. nodding.
2: But, you know, you and I are both talkers. <clears throat> That's our favourite communications. Some people,
0: you know,
2: this caricature CFO quite likes tables of numbers. Someone who is perhaps a writer, someone who might be working in a marketing function, quite likes the written word. Chief executives might be good detail people who might want a different form of communication, which is a simple chart with some narrative. So even down to how to communicate with your stakeholders, not I'm going to publish something in a magazine, I'm going to put something on a website, I'm going to put something on a poster, but the one-page strategy stuff that Gartner talks about is really powerful too because it helps you articulate why the project is to be done. It's a great infographic model, and it works very well with certain groups of people who respond well to visual communications, which is most people at one level.
1: I agree. We have these, of course I'm going to agree, but we have tools to help people do this as well. The one-page strategy is one. We have a power mapping tool, which I've sat with you in front of clients and done quite a few times, and it's amazing how much of a revelation that is to the people that we're speaking about. Someone once said, the, probably a lot of people have said this, the difference between manipulation and influence is intent. So, <laughs> but these aren't the dark arts, are they? We They're need not. to get better Absolutely. at understanding this is about human beings and what's motivating these human beings and it, how do we it, get them on board. It,
2: yeah, and I think it's lazy thinking to say that Digital is all about agile, which means we have a 15-minute delivery window. I'm exaggerating. But, you know, it means, you know, we can do a release cycle every two weeks. Or if you look at the microservice level, we can do 10,000 releases a day. Yeah, absolutely. Very good. Thank you very much. But that's lazy thinking because that's still not the majority of IT functionality or information processing functionality. It takes a lot longer than that to do anything substantive. So we will always be facing the lag between idea implementation. We will always be facing the danger that the leadership team changes or the requirement changes, or the environment is so totally different that I'm implementing it that it was unforeseeable when I started. So digital isn't going to solve those problems. In fact, if anything, it's going to, as I've said earlier, it's going to make them worse because there is an expectation that things will be done quickly. So the only thing you can do is keep your stakeholder group informed. It's keeping them together. Basically, it's the role of the sheepdog. You've got to keep your sheep, your stakeholders, I'm being a little pejorative here, but you've got to keep your stakeholders pointed in the right direction. If the right direction is towards an objective which may be your successor as CIO, you'll see. It's still part of the job of the CIO to make sure that at the end of the day, the sheep end up where the sheep need to end up.
1: We've covered a few topics, Andy. We've moved on to sheepdogs as well, but I don't think we've moved too far away from the theme that we started on which is social science. On that note, we will stop the main part of the interview, but I did want to ask you one thing. If we were going to, on this subject, leave our listeners with one piece of advice, and this is a tricky question, I know, because we've covered a lot of territory, what would that be?
2: As you have said, Mike, it's a big, tricky territory. And I think Unfortunately, there's no simple answer to that question. So let me tell you what I would do. Diagnose, first of all, do the high spot review. What is actually wrong? Is it that you have a team that doesn't know one end of a project plan from another? Well, okay. there's some training. Is it that you have no way of estimating because something is novel? Okay. do you have to do it this big? Can you do a proof of concept? What can you learn from that? But I think the one thing that seems to be overlooked so badly by most complex projects is the stakeholder engagement piece. Who are your stakeholders? What do they believe they're getting out of this? What will they get out of this? And the other thing that you often look at governance, there's a sense that governance is somehow failing. Oh, well, we must throw our existing governance mechanisms out and replace them. Actually, you probably find your governance may not be perfect, but it's working pretty well in an organization that you've part of or you have ever worked in has ever delivered a project governance works even if you've never delivered a project but got close or you figure out why you didn't deliver the project governance is working so the other thing is that just because it's new doesn't mean it's better so sometimes the old-fashioned governance processes the racy models the steering committees and all of that material that gartner writes about on governance Is equally applicable. In fact, probably more applicable because it's almost like it's become unfashionable. So sometimes good old-fashioned consulting people and keeping them informed is a pretty good solution.
1: Wonderful answer from two old ex-consultants themselves. I've been speaking with Andy Russell-Jones in the salubrious surround of the Melbourne office here in Collins Street. Thank you so much, Andy, for your insights. Thank you for making the trip into town, <laughs> and I look forward to
2: doing this again sometime. Mike, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks very much. See
0: you. Thank you to both of you, Gartner Research Vice President and Distinguished Analyst Andy Russell-Jones and Senior Executive Partner Mike Power of Gartner Executive Programs. And thank you all for your time and interest. Make sure to check out our other Gartner ThinkCast conversations at gartner.com slash podcast, plus the Gartner webinars at gartner.com slash webinars. For Gartner ThinkCast, I'm Scott Smith. Thanks for listening.